Good morning. Um, my name is Susie Carlson. I am the church chair this past year, and I am here to give the report um, of our church progress of throughout this year. Um, so I welcome you, and both online and in person. So since our last annual meeting, we have been alive to see the Australia um, brush and California fires, as well as hurricanes and a lot of other environmental catastrophes. Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter accident. George Floyd's death sparked racial justice talks and movements across this country. COVID-19 accelerated into a global pandemic. Murder hornets were found in the United States. COVID-19 vaccinations were developed. There was a riot in our nation's capital and the transition of presidential administrations. Wow, <laughs> that is quite the year. But through all this, stories showing compassion and care were just told over and over. People showed up when their neighbors needed a helping hand. Heroes jumped into action even when they put their own lives in harm's way. Those who never gave blood rolled up their sleeves Resources and times were shared with adults and children who were food insecure. Many went shopping for the elderly and vulnerable to protect this group of people from COVID. Generous tips were given to those hit financially hard in the restaurant industry, even though they were taking their food to go. Zoom, FaceTime, and phone calls were made as people wanted to stay connected. Teachers and professors adjusted curriculum and environments so students could continue their education. Many of you see this, this list in you. And you did it with grace and perseverance because Jesus loves you and you love Jesus. As Mark 31, 12, Galatians 6, 2, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, and many other verses, Say, love your neighbor, help those who are oppressed, feed the hungry, care for the elderly, be generous, be people of hope. Jesus says, I will be with you until the end of the day. I will give you strength. Joshua 1.9 says, be strong and courageous, do not be terrified, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. As we reflect back, my hope is that as individuals and the congregation at First Evangelical Covenant Church here in Lincoln, Nebraska, we can say that 2020 brought us closer to Christ. I hope we say we showed up as prayer warriors, followed by action and compassion, to help those both inside and outside of our church building. The familiar way our church ministries functioned that changed this year. Many ministries came to an abrupt halt. Some were able to pivot and start meeting via Zoom or function within um, COVID safety guidelines. So some are still on hold. Worship service has swung back and forth from totally virtual to limited in-person attendance in conjunction with virtual worship. And through this, may we recognize that we still need to have the opportunity to learn and to grow in our faith with Christ. We also grow as we care and we help others because Christ's love prompts us to action, and through it all, Christ is over all. 
As I close, I want to thank Pastor Evan and Garrett and the rest of the staff this year. We had Tessa, Pastor Jody, Val, and Bob as they face this year with flexibility and leadership. I also want to thank this year's leadership team, Dave Admiral, Jennifer Wood, and Adam Sharp. They are incredible people who love Jesus deeply. So now, may God bless you and keep you. May God make his face shine upon you. May he give you his peace. Amen. Together, we celebrate how God has worked through our three-strand strong partnership. Congregation, conference, and denomination. To transform lives. Equip leaders. Respond to God's call for justice and mercy. Make disciples. Restore communities around the world. And ignite a passion to see the Holy Spirit moving through our congregations, out of our churches, and into our communities. In this upcoming season of ministry, opportunities are open to advance the mission through the multi-ethnic mosaic of churches. We are excited to see how the Holy Spirit will move throughout the covenant in 2020. We do together what we cannot do alone. We are covenant. Good morning. Uh, I'm Jennifer Wood, and as uh, Susie said, I am part of the leadership team this year. And I just want to give you a little bit about uh, the stewardship and um, how this past crazy, crazy year has gone for us. So um, one of the things that is the mission for stewardship is to encourage um, generosity. And it was abundantly clear this year that everyone in this church was generous. Uh, we never had a week, a month, where we were worried, um, and, and everyone stepped up uh, in spite of or because of the pandemic. And for that, uh, we are eternally grateful for everyone's um, listening and discernment to continue giving. Uh, the giving was used well. <laughs> there were, as, as Susie said, ministries that continued and uh, things that were very different that had to be put in place so that we could continue to, uh, to worship with God. Uh, so all of the online you see was from the generosity of this church. Uh, so I just want to praise God for, for this and um, hope that in the coming year we continue to see all of the blessings that God can give us uh, through our generosity. Thank you to Susie and to Jennifer for that.
And you saw that video from our denomination as well. That's last year's. I couldn't find one for this year because they've had to pivot too. But I will tell you, um, I was in a full on-day conference call with one of the boards yesterday for the Evangelical Covenant Church, and the president was there for a little while, and I'm encouraged that they are also making some great pivots and changes to adapt to where we're at. So be encouraged. We're trying to do it locally. They're trying to do it uh, nationally as well. I'm going to encourage you to find our text today, which is John 10, 10. Uh, Feel free to find it in a physical Bible or an electronic version. doesn't matter to me. But once you find it, keep it open, because we're going to go to chapter 9 as well. These are the words of Jesus, John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Key question this morning, do you believe it? I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Do you believe it? Can Jesus offer this life, and is it exclusively something only Jesus can offer? Do you believe it? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it how much? To the full. What I'm going to say going forward here constitutes essentially my 2020 pastoral report, but it's a sermon, and it's actually the first of three weeks, so uh, we'll keep this thought going for a while. But where we're at, I think Susie aptly pointed out that last year had a lot of moving parts, if we wanted to say it diplomatically. Um, There were a lot of things that went on, but I think the long and short of it is we're definitely not in what we could call post-COVID yet. I don't know what that looks like. and I don't think anybody exactly does, nor do I think we've reached that point yet in the destination. But I will tell you this, a lot has changed and continues to change. And I think underneath that, if it's not already at the surface in many cases, there's also a cultural shift that's been going on and continues to go on. And so what I want to do over the next three weeks is give us a simple phrase and some language by which we can have new language to fulfill our mission in a new cultural moment. It's not complicated language, it's Jesus language. If you've read my report that was sent out this week, you already know the language, and that is this. If we simply state our mission, uh, it hasn't changed, but the way we've stated it perhaps could to pivot in this time better. We are disciples who make disciples. That's what Jesus charged us with doing, and that's who we are. It's active language. It's Jesus-endorsed language. We are disciples who make disciples. That's where we're going over the next three weeks, and I hope to live out over the years to come. Let's turn back to the text then as we consider that and keep that in mind, that we are disciples who make disciples at First Covenant Church. Go back to John chapter 9, verse 1. Seems like an unremarkable moment in many ways. Jesus is in view here, and it says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Jesus' response to this man who is blind from birth kicks off two chapters of lots of big questions and conversation that goes on. His response to healing this man who is sitting there blind, who had begged for his living his entire life, kicks off two chapters where questions of who is Jesus? Where does he come from? What is obedience? Questions like that are asked. Is the fourth commandment more important than healing? You'll be reminded of the fourth commandment in a moment if you've forgotten. What is God's kingdom? 
big questions like this are all kind of brought to the surface over the next two chapters because Jesus encountered this man born blind and healed him. We won't recount the whole thing. I would encourage you to read chapter 9 later today uh, and connect it with chapter 10. They go together. But the story goes like this. Jesus sees this man on the side of the road. He heals this man so he can see again. And it's an interesting way that Jesus heals. Jesus could just touch and he'd be healed, but for whatever reason, he does it different in this particular case, making a different point. The Pharisees, these cultural influencers and unofficial religious leaders that had a lot of power and control, they're looking for a reason to discredit Jesus. And they see one more chance here when Jesus looks to them like a sinner by healing a man on the Sabbath of all things. And they say, surely this man couldn't be from God. And so they pull in this man who was blind and can now see and start to interview him. And it's interesting, if you read chapter 9, you see that everybody in town knew who this guy was. They had all seen him begging. They knew he was blind and had been blind from birth, and that's how he made his living, was begging on the side of the street. They had all seen him. It was no mystery. But the Pharisees are trying to find some alternate explanation for the reality in front of them. And so they pull this man in, they interview him, and he tells them in simple terms, Jesus healed me. I don't know how, but he did it. Now I can see. What more do you want from me, guys? So then the Pharisees aren't satisfied with that, so they bring in the man's parents. And here we can look back at chapter 9, starting at verse 20. The parents are talking. They say, we know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. You can make your own assessment of the parents. I'm not going to go into that. But not getting satisfactory answers from the parents, what do the Pharisees do? Instead of taking the evidence in front of them, they bring the guy in again and ask him the same questions, basically. If you keep going on, verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind, give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And then they hurl insults at him, it says. How dare you? You're a sinner just like he is if you think we want to be his disciples. Let's cut the Pharisees some credit for just a moment, a little slack. They did appear to have a desire to be obedient. It looks like they want to obey the law so much so that they invent extra laws so that they can obey the law and not disobey God. But they appear to be in the process of that, missing the bigger picture of what God is actually doing because of that. They've got these sort of already conceived notions of what God could and could not do. And so they operate in obedience, but they operate in obedience out of self-interest. So when they say give glory to God, 
They don't really mean that. They mean give glory to myself. That's what they want. They want to be obedient. They don't care about the blind man and his faith. They just want to make sure they as individuals stand right before God. Who cares about the blind man? He's just a tool for them to make sure that they are proven right before God. That's all they want. That's what they're interested in, their own obedience, which isn't obedience at all, as it turns out. And you see, they had evidence in front of them of something remarkable that had happened, and even eyewitness testimony of healing in front of them, but that did not fit their idea of how God worked, so they couldn't possibly accept it, even after two interviews with the guy and with the parents, and presumably the people in the town all can testify to this too, and maybe even have. We don't know. They don't supply us with that, but everybody knew we're told that this man had been born blind and now can see. And Jesus is the one who really puts a, puts a fine point on this in verse 39 of chapter 9. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Who is blind now, right? The Pharisees are the man born blind. He sees. He recognizes the Pharisees who should see are blind. That's the context by which Jesus gives that verse, John 10, 10, I've come, uh, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, only to do that. I've come that they may have life. Jesus has presented himself by this point as the good shepherd who cares for his sheep, who's come for his sheep. It's a, it's a bold proclamation in and of itself. It's one of Jesus' seven I am statements in the book of John, which are all bold statements of who he is. But who is the thief? In this passage, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Well, the thief could be Satan, of course. I mean, what's Satan and his demons? What's their goal in life but to pull us farther and farther from God in this life? And lie to us is one of the chief methods by which Satan does that, right? Two lies that we too often believe are polar opposites. One is, uh, and this is one of the, the tricks of Satan and his demons, you are so worthless, we are told to believe. You are so worthless and broken that you're so far from God already, you're unredeemable. Don't even try and approach God. It can't be fixed. That's a lie that we're led to believe by the evil one. On, and it's not true, right? It's a, it's a lie. Of course we're redeemable. We are broken, but we're redeemable. That's what Jesus came to do. Any amens in the house for that? The other lie that Satan tells us is the complete opposite. The Pharisees buy into this one. Nothing is broken in you. You are right and perfect just the way you are and improving each day. In fact, if anybody tells you different, they're a hater, disregard them. There's nothing redeemable in you because there's nothing broken in you. So in one case, we need God, but we're told he's too distant and removed to fix it. And in the other case, we're told we don't need God because there's nothing that needs to be fixed. We are God. Pharisees actually fall into that second category. They're both lies. Don't believe either one of them. We know that Jesus is talking about that because back in verse 1, it won't come up on the screen, but back in verse 1 of chapter 10, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Who do you think he's talking to? The Pharisees. 
They're the thieves. What do the thieves do? They kill. That specific word kill, besides the steal and destroy, but the kill word is kill as in slaughter for a sacrifice, as in on the altar, for atonement or as an offering of some kind. The thieves come around and they wish to kill and slaughter those and offer for sacrifice something that doesn't belong to them for their own benefit, basically. The promise from Jesus is abundant life, full life. And yet, the thieves try and steal that. The healing and restoration that Jesus promises, the thieves would take that away and say, that's not for you, that's for us. All with a religious-looking veneer over it. No, Jesus comes and he says, I have come that you may have life and have it how much? To the full, abundant life. Life that exceeds this life now. When Jesus comes and heals the blind man, this miracle, this mighty deed, all of Jesus' mighty deeds, his miracles, are signs that point to kingdom life. What God does in this one man is what God is going to do to all people who follow him when the kingdom finally comes. Not everybody will get healed in this life, but in the end, everybody who follows Jesus will be healed. That's the promise of abundant life that Jesus brings. But it's also Holy Spirit-infused life from this point on if we follow Jesus. It's God present through all circumstances, through all things walking with us because this world is still broken. And it's going to get us sometimes. But with Jesus and that abundant life, we don't need to despair. We have a greater hope than all the things this world will throw at us. There is redemption. Something needs to be redeemed, and Jesus is going to do it, even if he doesn't do it all now. The promise is he will. And if we follow Jesus, that means we're his disciples. That's what a disciple is. They're a learner. Learning from the master. That abundant life begins the moment we say yes to Jesus and he begins to transform us by the power of his Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Do you believe it this morning? Do you believe that he promises that and he is the only source of that life? That's why we can easily proclaim that as his church, we are disciples. We believe this is the reality that we live. And we take Jesus at his word that life is only found in him. We are disciples. Who are we? We are disciples. The Pharisees and others like them would keep this information to themselves. Obedience for the sake of being obedient at the expense of anybody else, putting anybody else on the altar to prop themselves up. But if Jesus is the only way, we cannot keep that information to ourselves, can we? No. We're disciples who follow Jesus' words and make disciples. That abundant life is not simply for us to hold on to. We're disciples who make disciples intentionally, enthusiastically. And we're also aware that as we do that, that new cultural moments means new, mean new opportunities to make disciples. And I think that's where we have to realize we are. This world has changed in many ways. We don't even know all the ways. 2020 presented a lot of new challenges. We don't need to recount them. One trend, though, that we can point out that 2020 brought for us, and those that are watching at home can probably test this more than anybody, it gave us new habits. Whether we wanted them or not, we all have new habits that we formed 
over the last year, whether we wanted those things or not. Business, church, home life, everything. And even for the first time ever, I think at least in a generation or multiple generations, church members that were completely and totally devoted, who had to worship online only for a period of time, realized for the first time ever that they could do something different with their Sunday morning. Right? We realized we could do different things with our time and with our space and with all kinds of things in our lives. Home office was possible. Teaching kids from home was maybe not preferable, but possible in some cases. And what that means is that we don't know where the end of all these changes are, but we know that we need to be responsive to them if we're going to be disciples who make disciples in this world. And so, Kerry uh, Newhoff, he's a Canadian pastor. I really enjoy his stuff and highly commend his stuff to you. He had one of his zillion articles that he writes. They're very short, but uh, poppy. Uh, seven disruptive leadership trends that will rule 2021. I'm not going to read all seven, but I want to pick out three for you. Uh, Newhoff, N-I-E-U-W-H-O-F, just like it sounds. Um, he t- says three things that we should point out today, that one of the disruptive trends that we will see and we're already seeing it, and I'm, I'm hearing this from pastors around, and you'll see this in business too, but we're talking church now, super high turnover within church life. People coming, people going, shuffling the deck, all those kinds of things. Far more people than usual will quit, move, and leave. That means people will come too, right? So don't just despair. It just means that at this time, this is the first time in my ministry in serving in churches in 14 years as a pastor in three different churches, I'm not entirely sure all the people I'm pastoring and shepherding. Right? It's, it's just not abundantly clear. I know generally, but there are people that are online that haven't been here in person, but I'm, I'm your pastor, right? It's the first time in 14 years. That's a new opportunity. It's great. When there are times of instability and change, decisions that we held off on sometimes come to a head. People are doing that in all spheres of life. Church is not excluded in that. Business as much as church, people will come and go, and we need to be receptive and extra hospitable to new people and the energy and ideas they bring in the days ahead. Every week, I assume that we will have guests in person or online, and I think we should assume that and be hospitable. People who stick with us, though, through the crisis, as with any church, they're in it for the long haul. That's the upside of this. They're in it for the mission that we're disciples who make disciples. Second thing we should point out, nothing and no one will ever go quite back to normal. And much as we don't want to admit this, this is the reality. Right? I hear this said a lot, and I've said it myself earlier on in this. You know, One day things will go back to normal. They won't. Things have changed. We have to realize that. There will not be a day when everybody floods back to church like it was March 8, 2020, or Easter 2019, or Christmas 2018. Yeah, the, the seats will be full again, but it's not going to be like the spigot just turns on on a particular Sunday. It's going to be a slow drip. We've got to be receptive every week to what God brings us. To quote Newhoff, he says, The world we left in 2019 has morphed into something new and different in 2021 and beyond. Denial is not a strategy, or at least not a very good one. And I think he's right. We need to adapt. Habits have changed. We don't know 
how far those habits will change, but we need to adapt. Thirdly, and lastly for Newhoff, a sustainable pace for everyone will become non-negotiable. Is anybody tired from 2020 at this point? Does anybody need a nap in 2021? It's a long year. We ran hard in many cases. The pivots we made back in March 2020 around here, I'll just speak from life here, seem like a decade ago. And it's going to feel the same way next summer, in 2020, summer 2022, what I'm talking about now is going to seem like a decade ago. It really will. We have a lot of changes still ahead, and we don't know what those all are. And people look to church to be a stable place in the midst of change. We don't want to ignore that, and we don't want to say it's not going to be a place that we can rely on. But if we simply rest on the fact that it's going to be stable, we're going to miss out on opportunities and end up acting more like the Pharisees than the blind man. And that's not who we are. We don't want to miss the opportunities God will bring to us. So a word of encouragement as we consider the sustainable pace piece. I'm learning this. and I'm trying to put it in practice, although it's slow going sometimes. Everybody, no matter what you do, build margin into your day and into your week so you can give yourself a break. And part two of that, since you asked for my opinion, shut off the news a little more often. Give yourself a break. People's habits have changed. The mission hasn't. People's habits have changed. The mission has not changed. And with those habit changes comes spiritual opportunity to reach new people that we couldn't reach before. Let me give you a passage from Galatians and then sermon number two, and then we'll end it. So passage from Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Jesus came at the right time in history, we're told. What made it the right time for Jesus? What made it the right time uh, for the spread of Jesus' message and the New Testament? I don't know if you've ever considered the, the different things that all came together. Uh, this is sort of standard fare for what I studied church history to start here. But let me just give you, rifle off a couple things why the New Testament, why the good news of Jesus Christ spread so far, so fast, in a very short period of time, in just a couple centuries. And it was all within the context of the Roman Empire, because the Roman Empire had this great expansive uh, reach in all these different cultural groups. And what they did was they had Roman soldiers that were everywhere and kept what's called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, right? They could quell any kind of dissent that was going on. Within that, they had a massive and expansive road system, that went from Jerusalem to Rome and all over the empire that was generally safe because of the peace of Rome, the soldiers that were everywhere taking care of things. Even though it might not have been the local language of everybody, everybody could generally speak or work in the Greek language that was everywhere empire-wide. So the New Testament, what language is it in? Greek. Because everybody could get that and understand it. It was the trade language, and it's, we call it Koine Greek, common Greek. That's uh, the re- Greek of receipts and soldiers. Right? It's everyday Greek. 
There was somewhat of a common culture in the sense that a lot of people had a lot of common touch points. Paul kind of has some fun with this in a couple of his letters, kind of making fun of the Cretans, you know, in, in Titus or, or quoting Epicurus in, uh, in one of his letters. He, he kind of has fun with those cultural touch points that people had, and they had some common stuff that they could at least kind of get together on, even in their differences. But, but very important, and we'll probably bring this up next week, is people were spiritually hungry. The gods that they served and the, the temples that they went to had really little to no ethical requirement. In fact, they were the opposite of being ethical in many cases. They were morally disreputable in some cases. And they went to those things just simply to, to kind of placate. There's no life-giving element to their religious systems of the day. And so when Jesus comes to a spiritually hungry place where the message can get everywhere, fast. I would suggest to you that while we're not in the exact same situation, what are the similar opportunities that we have right now, even with all the disunity that we've seen and it's there, and within the church we should be able to have the conversations and good conversations with one another even when we disagree on things, there is still a common experience. You're all wearing one of the common experiences on your face, right? We've worked from home. We've done a lot of the same things over this period to make accommodations. We have a lot of common experiences together that can actually unite us and create commonality. In that, over the past year, we've seen a renewed sense of priority in people's lives. People had to rethink what mattered the most. Kids, family, work, relationships. What are those? How do we do those? Church life. All of that, we had to rethink all of that. And, and then sitting beneath the surface, some of it's bubbling up and some of it's just waiting to bubble up, there is a spiritual hunger, whether realized or not, in the, our coworkers and our school classmates and the people around us and family members, because as they had to reprioritize things and consider their priorities, they also had to consider the why. Why do my kids matter? Why does my work matter? Why does where I work matter? Why do my social relationships matter? The deeper parts of that came out and the things that tie us together and your worldview that goes with that have all come out. And especially, we're not a culture that generally thinks about our mortality a whole lot. And guess what 2020 made us think about? Our mortality a whole lot. People thought they were going to die, whether they got COVID or not. People that did get COVID thought they might die. People that were related to people or were friends with people who got COVID thought they might die. And then in some cases, they did die. We thought about mortality a lot. In the midst of that, people losing loved ones, almost losing loved ones, almost losing their own lives. They also missed out on major milestones, on funerals, on weddings. All kinds of things happened where we had to face the why of those things and why those matter and the important things of life. People are thinking about those things. Are you seeing it? Deeper and deeper. That, my friends, is a spiritual opportunity for disciples who want to make disciples. To connect with those realities in our world. People who were previously spiritually blind are beginning to see. Can we see that? John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Do you believe it? The mission for us is the same. The cultural moment is new. And I think the language that takes us forward in that cultural moment, not knowing everything that happens, is that we are disciples who make disciples. 
There's movement in that. We're never satisfied with our own growth in Jesus Christ. We can always grow more. And we're never satisfied that we've seen enough people come into the kingdom. There are a whole ton of pre-disciples out there. And we're on the lookout as disciples who make disciples. So I want to give you one simple challenge. It's very easy. You can write it down. You don't post it in the comments online. You can do it on your own. Just write it on physical paper if you've got it or mentally catalog it. But consider your own discipleship today. You're just going to take your spiritual temperature from 1 to 10, 1 being low, 10 being red hot. What's your desire to be like Jesus today? 1 to 10, just write it down. And then the follow-up question to that as you consider it is, what can you do this week to move the needle? What can you do this week to increase the temperature? Now, if you're at 10, I don't know what you do, but maybe you're at 9, really. What can you do? Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment where we are faced with a spiritual hunger, whether we realize it or not, start with us. Both give us that hunger, if it's diminished right now, for a 1. And if we're at 10, Lord, give us the opportunity help make disciples. Lord, increase in us the desire to follow you closer and closer, be more like your son, and never to be satisfied with where we stand as disciples today. We didn't just say yes to you and step into the doors of your kingdom only to stand there at the entrance, Lord. We want to go deeper and farther with you. We want to be transformed in the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We are redeemable, God, and you came to do it. So redeem me. Redeem us. Make us right with you more and more each day. Amen.